Hello and welcome to Talk of the Hound, a podcast from Theatre Hound. Theatre Hound is a new unique theatre website launching this year which looks at the art and business of theatre from a multitude of angles. I'm your host, Wes Braver, and I'm here to talk to all kinds of people whose work makes theatre so compelling today. My guest today is Randy Danson, the actor of stage and film known for her work in the 1988 Scorsese film The Last Temptation of Christ, and who has had many appearances on Broadway, including two years as Madame Morrible in Wicked. She was also the first wife of Ted Danson, the star of Cheers. And she's going to start by telling us a little bit about uh, how she got into the biz of theater. It happened that one day I'm walking through the office at my school, and I'm in high school, and, and uh, my headmistress handed me this pamphlet. She said, this might be interesting for you. And it was for Carnegie Mellon. They do these pre-college summer courses where you go and do like a six-week sort of intensive course in, uh, in any one of many areas, including theater. The Carnegie Mellon School of Drama was the first degree-granting theater institution in the U.S. and has remained one of the top programs in the country since its founding. And I thought, oh, that'd be... I, I looked at it and thought, sure, that sounds fun. I don't know anything to do this summer. But to me, it was, I thought, well, it's going to be kind of like going to camp or something, hmm. you know? I had yeah, no, yeah. no idea what I was getting into. <laughs> And so we applied and um, didn't hear and didn't hear. And then uh, one day when I was at school, the mail came and there was a letter from Carnegie addressed to Mr. Huh. My, my full name is Randall. And uh, it happened all the time, of course, that I would get Yeah, mail. yeah, yeah. So my first mom didn't think anything about it. And then she thought, oh, wait a minute. And she called them and it turned out that they had split up my... You know, you had to send letters and, and um, you know, forms <laughs> and all this stuff. And they'd gotten split some into the girls' files and some into the boys' files. Oh, my God. So they said, oh, wow, we haven't had any room for girls for a long time. <laughs> but we'll put her at the head of the waiting list because it was our screw-up. <laughs> and while she was talking to them on the phone, somebody canceled. Oh, my gosh. So I, I ended up going. And there, that was like the, you know, oh, my God moment where... It, not only did I get like, oh wow, you can like learn to do this, and there are just people who do it, and I'm being taken seriously. It was like, wow, this was a. It was like being told, you could eat chocolate cake for the rest of your life and be totally healthy and everything will be fine. <laughs> You're never gonna have to eat peas again. And so I was like, wow. And from that point on, it was like, well, I know what I want to do, I know what I'm going to do, and I know where I want to go to college, and. I applied to no other college. Um, I lied to my school and my parents that I had applied to backup schools. Oh my gosh. I had not. Um, and of course, to go to Carnegie, you also have to go and do an audition. I had no idea what an audition was even, mm -hmm. really. You know, I just knew that you looked in a play for where there was a big hunk of something, <laughs> and you learned that, and then that was yeah. the deal. So I had chosen incredibly inappropriate material <laughs> and, and then arrived uh, to audition absolutely out of control with panic and nerves. Yeah. I, I stood in front of these people. I remember this, that my kneecaps were vibrating and I kept oh, thinking, I'm going to fall down. Oh like, so I'm kind of just thinking, just don't fall down, don't fall down, stand up. And meanwhile, my, you know, my mouth is working, and I'm saying these things that I learned. <sighs> and I was just like, oh my God. Yeah, I, I knew enough to know 
that was a disaster. And I just was living in panic until the letter came. Yeah. Because I knew I had no other way to go. You'd put and, all your eggs in this bag. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, I'm going to have to confess to all the lies. Oh, my God. Never mind sorting out where you're going to go to college. So then the letter arrives, and I was home when the mail came that day, and I saw the letter from Carney, and I put it under my shirt and went into my bedroom, because if it was bad news, I was going to have to figure out how I was going to yeah. play this. So yeah. I went into my bedroom, and I opened the letter, and it was an acceptance, and so and I just started screaming and jumping up around, you know, and, and, <laughs> and there was that. Um, so it was one of these in weird kind of feels like fate. Yeah, do you, going back to that moment when they when they thought you were a boy and got you in. Do you think about your life if that hadn't if that mistake hadn't happened? Yeah. Do you even find that path ever? You know, my intention prior to that, I, I enjoyed, I always enjoyed language and I enjoyed foreign languages as well. And I, uh, the only language available to us in my school was French and I'd taken a lot of French and we had a very cool French teacher who was a, I think from Paris, but at any rate, a French woman. And um, I'd been living in America for a long time teaching French. And I thought, that's what I'll do. I'll go live in France and I'll teach English. So I'll just do the, the reverse uh, of Madame Eisman. I'll go be, you know, <laughs> Madame Randy somewhere. And, um, you know, that still kind of appeals to me to live outside America. This is something I've always wanted to do hmm. for at least a stretch of my life. But uh, that was my 16-year-old's idea of what could I tolerate doing? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I was going to go to college and study languages and and live outside America and teach English was my, huh. my sort of plan. Interesting. Until, until the door opened and I was like, oh, never mind. <laughs> yeah. The, ro- the roads you didn't take, yeah? The, yeah. Yeah. So uh, getting back to the, the story... Mm-hmm. So you were at Carnegie, you found it, you were loving it. Mm-hmm. What what happens after college? Um, well, uh, I, I uh, uh, my freshman year in our class was young Ted Danson. Ted Danson is best known for playing Sam Malone in the wildly successful NBC sitcom Cheers, and he now stars in NBC's The Good Place. So we were in the same class. Yeah, between sophomore and junior year, we got married. I was 20. I just turned 20. Hmm. So, you know, what could go wrong? Um, <laughs> he came to New York uh, ahead, a little bit ahead because I was finishing out school. And so he was slightly more established. And then, uh, and then I graduated and came to New York. And, and I was just... I, my theory now, who knows, but my theory now is that... I was really a very young 18 in many ways when I went away to college mm. and that I wasn't really ready to be on on my own. So I think a lot of this relationship that we had and the marriage that we had actually I think was a very good one. But I think it was a kind of interim stage. I can't speak for him, but for me certainly. And that when we were both kind of had our feet under us enough and figured out where we wanted to go and what we wanted to do, we sort of looked at each other and went, oh dear, because you want to go over there and I want to go way over there and what will we do, what will we do? So I think we kind of 
came to the realization, blessedly, sort of at the same time, that this really was not going to fly, that we needed to go our own direction. So we had an incredibly amicable divorce, and uh, we all know where he went. And I stayed in New York and um, pursued theater, which is what I wanted to do here. Hmm. So, so that's how I started in New York. So it was a little rough in the beginning. I think I was uh, very thrown by it, thrown by being on my own, not, not feeling really equipped. New York kind of threw me and the whole thing kind of threw me. And it took me a while to feel like a competent grown-up, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that in many ways, being an actor does not foster in you a sense of being a grown-up. I think act, actors in, in our business are very much treated a lot like children, mm-hmm. or at least like the, you know, the, uh, the lesser to the parental types, directors, producers. You know. Sure. And uh, so you're not really encouraged to stand up and say, you know, I, I have a, a different idea, yeah, excuse yeah. me, you know, how about if you're, you're yeah, yeah. you know, and eventually I, I certainly did find that voice for myself and, and don't like to uh, work for people who don't treat actors like adults, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't interest me at all, I don't want a daddy, um, I want to be, you know, a colleague, yeah. and uh, so... But I sure as hell didn't start out with that kind of self-assurance, hmm. quite the opposite. <laughs> did you, do you think that some of your contemporaries perhaps did, and you learned it from them? Or do you think there was a, a gradual movement towards that in the industry? I think I, think I must have, to some extent, learned it from, from my contemporaries, of course. But I think... Uh, that's a, that's a hard question. I think I had to learn to be, I think I had to learn to be disobedient. I had to learn to be bad. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a very dear friend who was really good at that and really sort of enjoyed uh, goading me into bad behavior. And he was a classmate also at Carnegie and a very, very dear friend who has sadly died. Um, but he... Uh, you know, he would, he was always sort of playing the devil and uh, saying, come on, let's do this, you know. And uh, and also was a wonderful actor and wonderful to work with in that way in that he would kick over the fence. You know, you'd be trotting down, this is where this part's supposed to go and this is how this scene's supposed to be and he would kick the wall out and walk and go, you know. And I learned because I loved him so to trust him and to break rules with him so he was really valuable to me for many reasons as a friend but very much for that I think uh, uh, you know and then like everybody you have to go there you have to see a shrink you have to figure out you know you have to be angry about all the things you didn't get to be angry about openly and get over it and then you know you have to <laughs> just have to grow up basically and I, I'm not sure I still, you know, it, it, it really bothers me when I see fully adult actors who want to behave like kids because there is a resentment and a, a sadness about them because that's not 
right to be a, a mature adult in your craft and and you know they'll say things like oh I just do what the director says until he leaves town then I'll do what I want and I think that's this is like that's ridiculous that's like that's like behaving like a 14 year old or something huh. you know I don't like that it's like if, if I disagree with the director let's talk about it yeah. You know, let's find something that we can both agree on. And if we can't, and you really are set in where you are, then I shouldn't be here. Fire me, you know. Yeah. Uh, but let's not play these games. This is stupid. Um, I don't like that at all. And it makes me sad. And and I feel like those actors are kind of like, oh, you know, well, they make me do this and that guy is this way and that way. And they'll, they'll you know, badmouth directors behind their back and stuff. And I feel like... I don't like that. I don't like that whole approach of, um, you know, that they're sort of the enemy. They're either the beloved daddy and you do whatever they say, or they're the enemy. And I just don't. Uh uh. Mm -hmm. Uh uh. I will fight. You know, and and I, I, in my younger days, probably less pleasantly than now, Mm. I I worked with an amazing director named Garland Wright, who is also has passed and he directed a production of um, Good Person of Szechuan that I did and I had just a fantastic experience working on it with him and just loved him. Little context about these names, Garland Wright was the longest serving artistic director at the famed Guthrie Theatre in Minneapolis and The Good Person of Szechuan is a parable play from 1938 by Bertolt Brecht. Was really the first, I think my first experience working with an extremely um, talented, smart, mature director who also trusted and loved actors. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of The Good Person of Szechuan, uh, Shinte, who is the good person, um, has this huge emotional speech to the gods who are about to abandon her, and, and this geshrai, really. And we almost never rehearsed it. And, uh, you know, I'd learned it, obviously, <laughs> but, but we would only do it in the context of a run-through. Yeah. And I said to him at one point, are we going to like have a work session on this or something? And he said, I don't think you need to. He said, I think, um, I don't want you to have the experience of having that speech in your mouth without having the emotion behind it. I don't want you to ever feel that you're failing emotionally in delivering that speech. So I think you should just deliver it at the end of the play when it'll all be there for you. Huh. And that was like, wow. And that was whatever, it was like 35 or something at the time. And that was, I think, around the time, for various reasons, that I started to become a, a grown-up actor. Realized that I could be a colleague in that way. And we were sort of, we were sort of, uh, at, when it was all over, we were kind of post-morteming this uh, thing and talking about it. And, and I was talking about how, what a great experience it had been for me and how much I'd loved working with him. And he said, he said, well, I just thought you were so hard to work with. <laughs> I said, what? What are you talking about? I thought we had a great time. He said, we did have a great time. But he said, girl, you fight. You just fight and fight. And he said, I don't mind that. I like it. It's good. But he said, that's not going to be thrilling to every director you work with. And just so you know, that's how you come off. Mm. That you're like, 
Yeah. But, 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 you know, in rehearsal, yeah, 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 but, but, but. And um, I began to realize, yes, that is exactly what I do. And of course it would hit some people's ear like, a usurping of their authority in the situation mm -hmm. and uh, so I began to learn to catch things a little differently or to um, identify myself as the person who does this don't worry about it it's not as serious as it may sound mm -hmm. or I'm not as I'm not feeling as negative about this as this may sound it's just kind of how my brain comes out working mm -hmm. on it um, so I would try to uh, you know, uh, essentially, just just in a in a sort of people skills way, make more room for the people that I was working with, and I and I'm I'm hoping that I became an easier actor to work with at that point. If you enjoyed this interview, check out some of our other episodes. If you're a pet lover, I'd recommend the one with Bill Berloni, Broadway's go-to animal trainer. Or if you're interested in sound design and music, Dan Moses Schreier is one of Broadway's top sound designers and a frequent collaborator of Stephen Sondheim's. Until next time, thanks for listening to Talk of the Hound.